Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 178 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and today, well, that's all you've got. It's me, I'm all by myself, all alone, going solo, looking at the Doctor Who story, Planet of the Spiders. I would dare... <laughs> Everything we've planned, everything we've dreamt of is there in the palm of his hand. We dare not take the crystal. The Great One is all-seeing. All praise to the Great One. The Great One is all-knowing. All praise to the Great One. The Great One is all-powerful. All praise to the Great One. Yes, this week on our, uh, one of our other podcasts, Doctor Who Adversaries, Ian and I have discussed John Pertwee's last story. Um, on the show Planet of the Spiders and um, yeah we talked about the characters we talked about the story and um, yeah it it was a pretty long episode so what I decided to do was actually hold back on some of the background information I had and have it here because it's quite in depth on the special effects um, on that story and uh, yeah I thought it would suit more effectively speaking than the more character-based Doctor Who adversaries. So here we go. Um, If you've not seen the story, um, yeah, uh, the bad guys in it, there's a planet of the the spiders, Metabelius 3, and um, yeah, you have this alien race of spiders who are uh, dominant on that planet and are ruling the the humans on the planet, okay? And... um, yeah, so they are they, they, they are brought into being via puppetry, um, <coughs> with um, um, spiders of varying sizes, um, which I'll talk about here. Now, this information I've got is all from a, a very highly recommended paperback book called *The Doctor's Effects* by Steve Camden. As I say, it's paperback size, but it's quite thick. Um, there are quite a few photos in there and sketches, but uh, uh, it's all in black and white and they're quite small. That's the only failing of this book. The, the, the information inside is wonderful. Um, so thanks to Steve, I've, I've got um, the information and it's going to be in the form of quotes. All right. Um, I've got quotes from uh, the various special effects guys that were making this story. So let's go with Bernard Wilkie. And Bernard Wilkie, back in 1974, was the head of BBC Special Effects. So here we go. This is a quote, quite a lengthy quote, from Bernard. He says, This was the final story during John Pertwee's tenure as the Doctor and featured his confrontation with giant spiders. When making props of this kind, it was usual to study... Photographs of the real thing, which safeguarded our spiders from looking like the ones bought in joke shops. The spiders had a leg span of 18 inches and a body length of 8 or 9 inches. 
They were designed by myself and made by Ian Schoons with help from a team of assistants. The body shape was carved from expanded polystyrene, whilst the legs were made from aluminium wire wrapped in glue-soaked tissues to fatten them up. These wire legs could then be bent into any position desired. After painting, bristles cut from a paintbrush were applied to the legs to simulate black hairs. This made them look very realistic. Several of the spiders needed to be animated, and to achieve this we devised two methods. Some spiders had legs which were hinged at the body and these could be made to flex via a hand-operated rod from beneath the set. We also needed a spider to scurry across the studio floor independent of any outside operation. For this, Matt Irvin made a motorised spider with wheels hidden just below the body. The legs of this creature had independent links fixed to a crankshaft which made them move alternatively up and down. It was a fine prop which got affectionately christened Boris. Once in the studio, the effect of our sp spiders had on people was quite remarkable. Despite the fact that no spiders of that size have ever existed, some people believe the spiders to be real specimens which had been stuffed. Other less courageous members of the cast and crew refused to go near our spiders at all. Many people have a natural loathing of spiders, myself included, that is. That is until my involvement with this program. Having constructed prop spiders, my dislike for the real thing evaporated and I was able to handle any indigenous spider without revulsion. So, thank you Bernard. That's the first one. Okay. Now, what we're going to have is um, um, different people discussing the same thing. So that's Bernard setting it out. He mentioned Ian Schoons and Ian Schoons is the, uh, the next quote that I've got. Okay. And... He says, and there is one photo of what he's just about to talk about, um, and I will put it on the Facebook photo album for this episode. He says, I got asked to construct a prototype of a giant spider at the pre-production stage. I remembered the film Tarantula from back in the 50s, where an atomic explosion had created a giant spider which terrorized a community. Using a poster of the film as a guideline, I delivered my interpretation of the creature. This included big red eyes and legs decorated with modelling moss to make them appear hairy. It was no scarier than anything you'd see at a fairground, but Barry Lett surprised, surprised us all by deciding that it was too horrific for the show. I imagined the spiders to have a deep, sinister male voices to scare the living daylights out of the audience, but once again, Barry wouldn't hear of it and decided to dilute the horror at, at the horror aspect even more by giving the spiders female voices. I say that with no disrespect to Kismet Delgado, the actress who provided the spider voices. Kismet, by the way, was the widow of Roger Delgado, who used to play the master. I also made a model landscape of the spider's planet, Metabelius III, because their underground complex had to explode in the final episode. The miniature was made mainly from carved polystyrene, then decorated with a variety of paints and powders. I painted a backdrop to the landscape which featured the spider's blue mountain in the distance. At the studio recordings, Bernard Wilkie would often, quite often sit with the director in the production gallery whilst Matt Irvine and I would literally be on the studio floor. We were normally to be found cr crouching beneath a set in order to work the spiders. Matt had devised a self-contained and motorised spider which used to scuttle across the set, but the most complicated spider of all was the queen animated by cables running upwards into her body and a balloon, 
gallbladder to simulate breathing. The method was similar to that of a normal puppet but with the mechanics inverted to allow operation from below instead of above. Now, Ian there is, uh, is being a bit humble, in my opinion, because he, he, he could quite rightly have come up with another little anecdote about his time on Planet of the Spiders, um, but um, he didn't. Um, and um, I'll mention what that is in a minute after the next quote, which comes from Matt Irvin. Okay. Visual effects had a very important role on this show because we were solely responsible for the monsters. There were no equity members in rubber suits acting out a performance, so for the story to work, our team had to bring these spiders to life. For the next couple of weeks, the workshop was like a spider factory. Ian Schoons, Richard Conway, Steve Bowman and myself were turning out spiders on wires, spiders worked from below on cables, and dummy spiders that would just twitch via a nylon line. The best of these was the Queen Spider, which had been built to double up as the Great One, at the end of the story, thanks to the wonders of CSO. Just when we thought we'd got a spider planned for every occasion, Bernard Wilkie, the senior designer, put in a last minute request for a spider to run along the floor independent of a puppeteer. I christened this special spider Boris, named after the Who song Boris the Spider. He was made as an afterthought really, because all the other spiders to be featured in the program were more or less completed by then. Due to this, Boris's size and shape was dictated by the moulds we had already made, and it was a real challenge to fit the necessary mechanics inside. The motor, along with most of the wheel and gear mechanism, mechanisms, were Meccano parts powered by four AA-sized batteries. Boris had a tricycle undercarriage fixed through a plywood, plywood chassis, with a six-speed motor driving the back wheels to move him along whilst the front wheel steered. The motor was also connected to a rowing boat type of arrangement to drive the two pairs of middle legs. The front and back legs were attached to these by elastic and just swayed back and forth. The ground clearance was only three or four millimetres, so Boris sometimes got into, into difficulties on carpets or anything other than the studio floor. Many people have made the mistake of thinking he was radio controlled. It might have been easier if it had been. But it was, but he had a, sorry, but he wasn't. All we used to do was switch him on, set him down, and release him in the general direction indicated. As soon as the shot was over, I'd have to chase after Boris to prevent him smashing into something and damaging himself. I think this was the first occasion where a member of the special effects team had to dress in costume and be seen amongst the other actors. There was no way, no other way that Ian Schoons could operate the Queen Spider on certain sequences. And there we have it from Matt. Ian Schoons is actually in Planet of the Spiders. Um, in, I think it's episode two, where um, the Doctor and Sarah Jane go to the Planet of the Spiders. They meet the Queen, and there she is on her big cushion. And in most shots, as Matt was saying, they were crouched down on the floor operating the spiders out of shot. But for this shot, Ian Schoons is in shot because there's no way he could operate with the angle of the camera being quite far away, there's no way that he could be crouched on the floor. He would have been in shot. So if you look at episode two, standing behind the Queen is Ian Schoons, dressed as one of the villagers. Ian Schoons had a very distinctive face and uh, a very severe black fringe with jet black hair, like a pudding 
bowl haircut. And there he is. That is Ian Schoons uh, standing behind the Queen. And uh, if you look at his left leg, it's jiggling away like mad because basically what, what he's doing is the cables that run from the Queen go through the cushion under the table up Ian Schoons' trouser leg to his pocket and he's got his hand in his pocket and he's actually operating the queen and you can see his trouser leg twitching like mad that's <laughs> it looks like something else but it's actually uh, Ian Schoons uh, playing with the queen not himself all right um, next quote Richard Conway he says um, this one I remember because of the unusual subject matter the senior designer on this story was our head of department Bernard Wilkie then there was a quite a large team due to the high number of effects required. Ian Schoons was the main assistant. Then there was Steve Bauman, Matt Irvine and myself churning out a production line of spiders. Most had a vacuum formed body fixed to a wooden base. The latex legs all had wire through their centre so that they could bent, be bent into the desired position. They moved or twitched when one of us attached and pulled a nylon line. Matt did build one motorized spider that drove along on wheels, but it wasn't radar controlled. You just put it on the floor and then ran after it. I built, I built the great one, the huge spider at the end. That was in fact the queen spider, which had been seen throughout the story and it doubled up as the great one in the last episode. The legs and body were given movement through Bowden cables, which ran out of the spider's underside. So wherever the queen was sitting, there was a hole in the set hidden beneath the spider's body through which all the cables we were passed. One of us would be just off camera operating the thing. We'd use a monitor if we couldn't see the action. All right, and that's Richard Conway. And then we've got George Reed. Finally, we've got George Reed. And he says, uh, this story took place when I was on my second attachment to visual effects. I worked with Ian Schoons, who was the main assistant to Bernard Wilkie. Ian was quite mad, and I say that in a complimentary way, because he was always fun to work with. He used to send me notes which he had signed by drawing a small vampire bat instead of writing his name. Ian and I made some landscape models of the Metabelius 3 planet surface. I made three or four model buildings out of a thin cardboard, which were placed in the foreground of the, of the landscape miniature. We also did some larger models of the Blue Mountain, which we blew up on the Puppet Theatre model stage. I made half a dozen guns, which I think I vac-formed. Then, of course, there were all the spiders to produce. Steve Bowman and I set up a spider production line, vac-forming the bodies and making the legs out of latex. We also made some cocoons, which were supposed to be the spider's human victims wrapped inside spider webbing. I built the throne that the guards carried the Queen Spider around on, the top of which was made out of an old umbrella. I attended the studio recordings along with about half the staff of our department. We needed as many hands as possible because most of the spiders were simple dummies that just twitched on nylon line or by being prodded from below. There was Bernard in charge of the show, Ian, Steve and myself, Richard Conway and Matt Irving, all trying to inject some life into the creatures. And that's it. That's the quotes all done. So... As I say, that was a bit more in-depth than we normally go to on Doctor Who Adversaries, so I, th I thought I'd move it over onto, uh, onto this show um, and uh, give you this little uh, filler episode. Um, out of ten, out of ten, um, you can see what they are. They're dummy spiders being animated, and then Boris 
Yeah, bless him. He's definitely a straight line spider. Um, but they got a charm to them. You don't look at it and go, oh, that looks crap. Um, the voices are fantastic. The female voices. We were talking about that on, on the other show. Especially the great one at the end. Um, uh, seven and a half. Seven and a half out of ten. All right, that's it. That's us done for now. Um, in just over a week, I'm recording the next proper episode with a real co-host. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, looking forward to it. I think we're going to have a super time. Everything, everything, that's all, folks.